Now, before we read from Nehemiah chapter 1, let me take just a little bit of time to help us get our bearings in this uh, Bible book. Now, Nehemiah is uh, part of our motto series, and uh, the motto series is once a year we take what we're studying on Sunday mornings and we parallel that with studies in our small groups during the week. I think every small group in the church, bar one, who have recently studied Nehemiah, and also our uh, youth group and CCY group and students are doing this at Student Lunch, we're all going to be studying this book together over the course of the term uh, to them. Now, Inside here, you'll see a link between what we're doing on Sunday mornings and the small group studies, and it'd be great if we can all work hard to keep up to speed with where we are in the book. Nobody, I warrant, including me, will be here for all the Sunday mornings when Nehemiah is preached, but we can easily listen online and keep up with the links between uh, the Sundays and the small groups. Now, what's the book of Nehemiah um, about? These three books kind of go together, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Daniel describes the exile of God's people in Babylon. They rebelled against God, they sinned, they disobeyed his word, and God punished them by sending them physically into exile in Babylon. Jerusalem, Judah, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple in ruins, the walls of the city fallen down, symbolic of the spiritual decline of God's people. Daniel tells the story of the exile. The kind of time frame from Daniel is 605 B.C. through to 536 B.C. Now, Ezra picks up where Daniel finishes. Ezra uh, begins when Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, conquered Babylon and issued a decree And you read that decree in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, to say that the exiles in Judah could go back to their homeland. Now, behind it all is God, yeah? He exiled his people to punish them, but ultimately his purpose was to refine them, to make them distinctive again, to call them back to him. And it was God who moved Cyrus to issue the decree that sent God's people back after the exile. Ezra, notice the time period Ezra covers, 539 to 458 BC, nearly a hundred years, a hundred years, as, as bit by bit, inch by inch, the temple went back up. Two waves of exiles returned, and eventually Ezra, who was a great Bible teacher, got the whole of God's people together, and he read the law. They confessed their sin and they renewed their covenant with the Lord. So Ezra ends on a pretty positive note, round about 458 B.C. Now, Nehemiah begins in 445 B.C. Nehemiah was in Persia. He was a bit like Daniel in Babylon. He was a civil servant. And God moved him in his heart to to think, well, how are the returning exiles faring in Jerusalem? And he got some news that troubled him. The walls were broken down. The city was in ruins. And every time in the Old Testament you read of walls that have fallen down, then you've got to think spiritual decline in God's people. So he goes back to Jerusalem. 
with another wave of returning exiles. And he rebuilds the walls. He gets Ezra to preach to the people. They repent. They confess their sins. And then the book of Nehemiah ends with a dip. We're back to where we started all over again. And I love that about the book of Nehemiah. And you're all going, well, that's a great ending. Because it's real. Think of the history of the church, the ups and the downs. Every time there's a significant turning point, a generation or two later, until the Lord Jesus comes again. Now, that's the rhythm of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra covers 100 years. Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 12, I think it is, in Nehemiah, covers six months. Sometimes God works quickly. This is the message of Nehemiah. It's a bit long, but that's what it is. In response to God's gracious deliverance and trusting his promises and in his providence, God's people are to prayerfully submit to God's word and work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. So that's why we are studying Nehemiah. Now, every Bible book has a message that's relevant to the original readers and a message that is relevant to uh, us now. For the original readers back then, imagine God's people just after Nehemiah was written in the early 5th century. The walls are back up. The temple's back up. They're just beginning to get themselves together. They need to remember the past to keep faithful in the present. That's why it's written. And what about for us now? We live in the church age. Yep, the kingdom of God has broken into this world. But While God's kingdom has fully come, it's not finally here. That'll only happen when the Lord Jesus returns. And he needs the church in our day to be distinctive, to be a shining light, to be faithful to his word, to repent of its sin, that it might shine in the darkness. So we need the message of Nehemiah in response to God's gracious deliverance in Christ, the king and head of the church, Trusting his promises, I will build my church. And in his providence, that means God does it in his way and often surprises us. God's people, us, are to prayerfully, first prayer, submit to God's word and work strategically and with vision for spiritual reformation. This year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in Europe. A Reformation that recovered confidence in the Bible, a reformation that gave the Bible to ordinary people, a reformation that sought to raise up a new generation of leaders, a reformation that planted churches, a reformation above all that recovered a clarity in the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the kind of reformation that we need once again, in the Western world today. We pray for it, but we act with strategy and vision. Now, let's read chapter 1 of uh, the book. Nehemiah, chapter 1. The date is 445 BC. Two waves of exiles have returned. The temple is back up, but all is not well. The words of Nehemiah, the author of the book, the son of Hakaliah. 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that's the capital of the Persian Empire, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, Nehemiah's brother, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So in other words, Nehemiah is saying to them, how how are things in Jerusalem? You know, the temple's back up. Things good. God's people faithful. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the innermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cup-bearer to the king. One of the hardest things to do is to preach on a prayer in the Bible. So we really do need God's help. So let's ask him for that. Lord Jesus, these are great and sobering words, a passage of Scripture. How we need spiritual reformation in the church today. We pray that we would handle this book wisely and well. And be persuaded by the word of God and be willing and obedient to so respond. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hopefully our introduction will have given you some handle on what Nehemiah is all about. It is, would be fair to say, a turning point in the history of the people of God. And it's a real turning point. It turns things in a much more positive direction, but it doesn't turn them ultimately. Of course, 
it was 400 years before the Lord Jesus came and the kingdom of God broke into this world. And we live in that age, the church age. But I do not need to spend any time at all convincing us that the church has not yet arrived at the new creation. There's plenty stuff we need to heed, and there's plenty need for reformation, transformation, a return to God and his word. Significant turning points in the history of God's people. 500 years ago, the reformation swept through uh, Europe. We have, as a foundation of our church, the simple biblical gospel. And what we mean by that is salvation by grace alone, mercy alone, through faith alone, faith on our part, in the atoning death of Christ alone. And 500 years ago, the church in Europe did not believe in that gospel. And the Reformation sought to recover that simple biblical gospel. And that led to waves of people across Europe being converted to Christ. Another great mark of the Reformation was to take the Bible in Latin and to give it to the people so they could understand it. The people of God do not need the church to be an intermediary between them and the Bible, God's Word. The Reformation sought to recover the preaching of God's Word in churches and the teaching of God's Word throughout Europe. The Reformation in Scotland sought to plant churches all over the land and to establish in every community Christian schools. The Scottish Reformation is a little less old than the European Reformation. People like John Knox, whose statue you can see as you walk into New College at the top of the mine. One of the great things about John Knox is he was thoroughly flawed. And that's right, that's realistic. Yet God used him to bring a significant turning point in our country. Nearly 200 years later, in the middle of the 18th century, something called the Great Awakening throughout Britain, indeed throughout the world, the preaching of Whitfield, Wesley, and others. And, and they were unusual times. People would have preached in the open air to numbers of around 20,000 people. I mean, that, that's a kind of another world. And you've always got to be slightly wary of history books that kind of egg it up. Um, here's a fact, though. In Easter 1740, St. Paul's Cathedral in London, six people turned up for Easter communion. And there were nearly 250 crimes in 1740 on the statute books for which the punishment was death. That is a pretty beleaguered society. And yet God intervened in a strong and a powerful way. The 1859-1860 revivals in Scotland, in Ireland, and America. Writing at the time, here's a quote from Horatius Boner, who was the first minister in uh, the St. Catherine's building that we 
uh, formerly occupied. He wrote this, throughout Scotland, and try to listen to his words as if they might be true and needful today. Throughout Scotland, we need a divine stimulant, something that will bring us into closer connection with God, something that will enrich our spiritual poverty and replenish our drift and emptiness. It is not eloquence, it is not argument, it is not zeal, it is not fresh insights, and you might add to that, it's not primarily strategy and vision and planning and planting and training and all that stuff. It is not the enticing words of men's wisdom that we need for the revival of our church and our nation, but the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. And I think we would agree with all of that. Why is looking back helpful? Is it nostalgic? It can be. It can be crippling. We can live in the past. We can recreate the glory days that were not so glorious as we remember them. Read biography with the eyes of discernment that it would not be as good on the ground as it sounds like in retrospect. Looking back, though, reminds us and encourages us that God can do such again and that we need to have the eyes of faith to see the need of the hour. This past week, a number of us met up at St. Andrews, Paul Clark and I, who's the minister of the Free Church in St. Andrews, with a group of a dozen or so young men, including our Andy and Sam, and worked with them as we do regularly now and other groups like them to try to equip and enable them for church leadership, which means the simple gospel, preaching, multiplying ministry, multiplying churches. It was hugely encouraging to work with them because it gives us confidence and heart that God will raise up a new generation of leaders for the church. Now, with that in mind, this turning point in Nehemiah, point one, verses one to four, he felt he perceived and he felt the need. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the months of Kislev in the 20th years I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are destroyed. As soon as I heard these words, now the key here, the turning point here, the the take-home verse, if there is any take-home verse, is chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The year, the month of Kislev is the 20th year, 445 uh, B.C., many years after the first wave of returning exiles, nearly a hundred. It goes to show that progress towards spiritual reformation is painfully slow or astonishingly fast when God's spirit moves. Think of Daniel in Babylon, three significant events in that man's life 
and yet 60, 70 years of faithful witness in between them. That's real. And it may be that God's call to us as Christians who seek to be faithful to the gospel and the Bible in our day is simply to be faithful and then another generation and then another generation and then God will move. Or it may be that as we are faithful then all of a sudden an opportunity will come to push forward with the work of spiritual reformation. Nehemiah's brother Hanani comes from Judah, probably Jerusalem, and says to Nehemiah what has been happening. Although the exiles have returned, they are in great trouble and shame. What is the great trouble and shame? Almost certainly internal strife and division, external opposition, and that classic, classic issue that God's people face, whatever generation they live in, the fusion of the church and the world lukewarmness, looking to the surrounding nations or looking to the surrounding culture in our day for relevance. The broken down walls and gates, verse 3, may be referring to the original destruction back in 586 BC, but it's more likely that this is recent. A couple of people have given their life to studying to what extent the walls had been rebuilt after the exile and fell down again. Who knows? But it might be that the walls had kind of partially gone up again and they used the wrong cement or the wrong bricks or they ran out of money or they fell out or this contractor fell out. Whoever, that's symbolic of just the spiritual malaise. And think of our day when we're talking about bricks and mortar. We might think that the hardest thing to find is a church building. If God moves in a spirit of reviving power in our country, it will not be hard for the church to be creative, to open up all sorts of buildings for the gospel. Church planting in our country is extraordinarily difficult still. All sorts of obstacles are raised. All sorts of unrealistic funding targets are made. But when God's Spirit moves, the bricks will go up. The buildings will come. Now, something needs to be done and urgently. The walls are down. We need a strategy to rebuild the walls. We need a strategy to plant churches all over this country. We need a strategy to train leaders. We need half a dozen of these conferences we had this week to work with young leaders, to encourage them, to nurture them into ministry. We need a billion pounds to plant churches, to buy buildings. And that comes in Nehemiah, chapter 2 and onwards. But first, he sees the need, he feels the need, and he prays. Now, saying that Nehemiah saw the issues, remember he's in Persia, and they're in Jerusalem. How might we, it's not to be taken for granted that he saw the issues of his day. It might sound like a statement of the obvious, but it's not. He's uh, a bit like a, a permanent private secretary, a grade one civil servant back in Persia, a little bit like Daniel was in Babylon. Let's bunker down and enjoy the privileges of offices of the state. And yet, while Nehemiah was in Susa, his mind was in 
Zion in Jerusalem with God's people. Now, do we see the need in our day? Do we, do you, do I, do the church? Perhaps you're in a happy, strong church. Well, I guess to some extent we are, blessed and encouraged in gospel work. And that could easily blind our eyes to see the need beyond our own sphere, beyond our own walls. It was great to have the three boys from Charlotte this week. And we were all saying, and they're marvelous that Charlotte has 1,200 people at a carol service. The church is packed out. I was encouraging them to, to split their morning service, make room for non-Christians to come. We're all thinking this is marvelous, and it is. And it's fantastic in the city to hear gospel churches across the city rejoicing in spiritual growth in another church. One of the young guys, Martin Smith is his name, said, the big danger for our church, Charlotte, is we think it's marvelous. You could think it's marvelous, but we can't because less than 2% of our city goes anywhere near a living church Monday to Sunday every week. It's a tiny pinprick. So we might think that the need is not there. All you need to do is travel in the rural areas of this country. And almost every church you see is no longer a church. It's a holiday home, or a barn, or a building, or a factory, or whatever it is. Nehemiah perceived the need in his day, and we need to ask God that he might show us the need in ours. But he did not simply perceive it, he felt it. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His assessment of the situation was not distant, nor analytical, nor one of indifference. He felt it in his heart. He felt the dishonor to God. He felt the plight of the people of God, and so should we. There's a a kind of preacher line, and so should we, and so should we, and so we should, but we don't, I don't, really, really if I'm honest. I, I, as you know, and I know it causes you a great deal of concern, walk our little doggy in the dark up the hill. I never meet anyone, it's entirely safe because no one else is daft enough to do it at 11 o'clock at night. You get a wonderful view of the city. I sometimes take some of you up and we walk and we talk and we pray and we look at the city. And I often think that it would be great if I stood up there, a bit like Jesus, looking over Jerusalem and felt moved. And sometimes I do, but very rarely. That's got to be a God-given thing on your heart. We need to pray that God will move us, not simply to see the need, but feel the need. For when you see the need and feel the need, what happens? You pray to God, who is the one alone who can address the need. When you see the need, but don't feel the need, you go straight from seeing to doing, chapter 2. When you see the need, feel the need, and feel you're part of the need, or you pray to God and confess your sin. So Nehemiah's prayer, 5 to 11. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, And keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, relax. There's no application. You've got to go to the church prayer meeting. That'll come in chapter 9. This is individual prayer which is the acid test of a prayer life. What I do as a minister on my own. 
what you do as a Christian on your own, what an elder in this church does in their own prayer life. He perceives the need and feels the need, and he prays because he understands that prayer is an expression of our helplessness, our dependence, and our confidence. Do you think, humanly speaking, that the, 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 the tide that is uh, rushing in on the beach of our land, that is secular, that is moral drift, that is all that kind of stuff, in any way can be checked by our strategies? Do you think we could raise a fund and persuade people by giving them money that we can turn around and go the other way? I don't think so. We need God to act, and so we pray with a helplessness, and we lean on him. We lean on the God who has a passion for the glory of his name in this city more than yours and mine. We say stuff that's bold like, God, open your eyes and breathe life into the church in the city again. And we pray with confidence. Because we know God has a passion for that as great as any of ours, and that he is capable when we are not. Here's a classic uh, illustration. Uh, you'll have heard this before. It may be apocryphal, but it's good anyway. Um, there was a, a placard hung on John Knox's statue in New College a number of years ago with a big label and said, the church in the 21st century is on its knees. Of course, that is not the problem. That is the solution a praying church. Now, as we look at the content of his prayer, what can we learn from it? Firstly, I think that he prays with a deep knowledge of God. His prayer is thoroughly God-centered, God-focused. Notice how his prayer begins, not with the pressing need that is the broken walls of Jerusalem and the spiritual bankruptcy of the people of God, Not even does his prayer begin with a confession of sin that is necessary. His prayer begins with neither of these things, important as they are, but in adoration of God's divine omnipotence, his majesty, and his sovereignty. So, how does he begin? O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And that is such a vital lesson as we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We do not bring to God in prayer the practical needs on the ground before we remind ourselves in prayer and say back to God who he is. O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God. As one writer puts it, although Jerusalem's need had driven him into the presence of God, the city's problem is soon dwarfed by an awesome sense of God's majesty and glory. Within moments as he prays, this godly man is exalting a God who is sovereign and mighty and holy and loving and attentive and merciful. He prays with a deep knowledge of God, and yet he prays conscious of a loving God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then, from the middle of verse 6, Nehemiah prays with a broken heart, confessing the sin of the people of God. Confessing the sin of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, 
Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Confession of sin. It is corporate confession of sin from an individual who bears upon his own heart the sin of the people of God in his day. And he includes himself in it. There is not an inch in Nehemiah's mind that weighs up to what extent he is the responsible party for the sin of God's people. He bears that sin on his own heart and prays on behalf of the people of God with contrition and with repentance. And he prays with a confident appeal to God's covenant love for his people. The God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Then verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And what he's doing, he's praying with covenant categories. He's saying, God, look, you are faithful. If we are unfaithful, you will punish us. You will cause us to stumble and struggle until we come back to you and depend upon you. But if we do, you promise to restore us, to advance your kingdom, to pour out your blessing. Now, God will do what God will do in his time. Took him a hundred years to do it. But the same is true of us as the church. If we turn from God, if we disobey God, sooner or later it'll come home to roost and the light will begin to flicker less brightly in the church and in churches it goes out altogether. And so all over a country you would expect to see in a time of spiritual decline churches that are no longer churches or churches that purport to be churches where there is no gospel. And yet if God's people return then God's people should pray, we have repented. We have turned back to you. You are a covenant-keeping God. Build your church. Multiply churches. Advance your kingdom in this nation. Bring many people in this city to faith. And then Nehemiah concludes his prayer with an astonishing boldness that is inspiring and humbling at the same time. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. In other words, he's saying to them, or we are saying to God, God, look at the state of the church in this city. Will you, for the sake of your own glory and for the reputation of your own name, restore it? Will you do it? Because it's your church. And there are faithful people all over the city. So multiply their efforts. Now there's a a humility that is needful to pray such, but there's a false piety that thinks, oh, no, 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 we shouldn't be praying like that. And notice how he ends his prayer with chapter 2 in mind, the the vision, the strategy, and give success to your servant today, that's me, Nehemiah, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that's the king, 
who will determine whether or not he goes back to Jerusalem. I was cupbearer to the king. After all of that, he says, look, give us vision, give us strategy, give us a heart, give us a plan. Lay it on our hearts. One of the significant features of the book of Nehemiah is that God's people take the initiative in responding to God's own work of reformation in the church. So the applications as we close, do we see the need in our day? Do we feel the need in our day? And are we moved to pray to God, conscious of his majesty and his power and his authority and his love and his passion for the glory of his own name? Do we have the boldness within us to ask the God of heaven to open his eyes, to look at his people, and to look whether our living churches and pour out his spirit into them? Do we have the boldness with this building that we have been given that will be opened up to the gospel to pray that kind of prayer in relation to what we might be able to do for this city and beyond for the sake of the gospel in our time? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this book, its relevance, its timeliness. We pray that as we study it, wrestle with all the reality of rebuilding Reformation work, that you would help us to see and to feel the need of our time and move us to pray with a conscious, deep knowledge of God, appealing to your mercy, appealing to your own glory and passion for the sake of your own name. And may you, in these days of decline, build your church and turn the tide and see many people come to faith in your Son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.